All right, guys, we're going to the Big Island over in Hawaii this week. Check it out. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Time studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. Uh, a couple quick announcements for you guys, uh, because I've got a really good one lined up for you this week. It's somebody um, that I've really enjoyed following on Instagram, and I'm going to get into that in just a minute. Uh, but I did want to let you guys know, uh, recently we had uh, some folks jump on and give us some really good reviews on on Apple Podcasts. Uh, guys, that goes a long way to our mission and our message, and, and it really helps the exposure of the show. So if you wouldn't mind jumping on there, if you haven't given us a, a good review, um, I'd, I'd really appreciate if you do that. Take a few minutes and do that. Uh, if you don't like the show... Uh, you know, don't bother getting on and, and giving us a review. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, is uh, we are we are back on Twitter uh, due to recent uh, management changes. We have decided to get the uh, get the Twitter going again. So if you want to check us out, it's at the Western Huntsman. Jump on there, and we will uh, be growing that uh, platform as well. So that said, this week I've got somebody. If you jump on Instagram and check out at Wild Ketzel which is spelled uh, wild, the word wild, and then Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L, all one word. This is somebody who is uh, really speaks to me from a different perspective, from somebody else's perspective that has a very passionate way of, of uh, spreading a message that I couldn't agree more with. I, I just don't know how else to explain it. And, and I really enjoy his Instagram and uh, I'm just getting to know him like you guys, and and uh, I want you to meet him now. So, Ketzel, uh, first of all, am I saying your name right? Yeah, perfect. Sweet. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. This is uh, this is going to be a good conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm excited. Uh, let's let's kick it off with um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ketzel, and 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 we'll get into the why of some of your messaging. Uh, but first, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're at, uh, in terms of where you live, how you live, all that kind of stuff, so people get a feel for who you are. Okay. Yes. So it's a lot of components, I guess, because uh, I'm in on the Big Island of Hawaii right now. Um, but I grew up in Southern California, um, Mexican heritage, and that's where I spend most of my life. Um, at some point in my life, I got really interested in health and wellness and went just down a rabbit hole of questioning a lot of things that I had never thought about or questioned. I was kind of just living life on autopilot like a lot of us are or were. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point, I just was awakened to a whole different reality 
that kind of led me down this rabbit hole. For me, it kind of started with health and wellness, and then it kind of went down the spiritual path, and then eventually it kind of led me to pursuing some of these traditional life ways, and uh, along with that came hunting and this knowledge of of the land and these traditional uh, ways of living that you know we all come from at some point in our lineage. So we we had traveled, me and my family, we were actually traveling through different countries in Central America, and we lived in Mexico for a while, and then we came to the Big Island, and this is where we've been the last four years, and and yeah, so I just wanted to say, like, first and foremost, I, I'm, I'm a relatively new hunter, like, I, I took up hunting as an adult, and here in, on the Big Island is where I have uh, primarily learned that skill and I'm still learning, you know, but this is where I kind of, uh, first started that journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, so I didn't know all that. That's, uh, I don't know if there could be a better place for that kind of, uh, I mean, if you can hunt on the big Island, uh, I'll just put it to you this way. If you can hunt on the big Island successfully, you can, you can pretty much hunt anywhere. Uh, that's a great spot. And, uh, before we get too far into this, uh, Ketzel, do you have like a YouTube channel or anything outside of the Instagram that people should know about? Yeah, I all my platforms. I'm on TikTok, um, Instagram, and YouTube. Um, all the same, Wild Ketzel. Um, yeah, so uh, on the short form content, like what you see on Instagram, you'll find a similar thing on TikTok. And then YouTube has some of my lives and longer form content that I've done. Gotcha. Uh, so I want to get back to something you, you were just talking about. Um, you were living in California, Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and actually, I think it's worth mentioning. I, I, you probably, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with my show, but we've been having these discussions lately uh, with two of my, my good buddies, um, Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources and Guy Duplanchet of Western Contours. And within like the whole... Um, operation we've been you know the message we've been trying to push onto uh, you know hope, hoping to open up some new perspectives and have some more difficult conversations centered around you know whether or not hunting is conservation and how we message that to the general non-hunting public and how how we get to a point where we don't feel like this thing we do hunting is always at risk and mm-hmm. and it's going to require some tougher conversations and stuff so anyway that's a long way uh, I'm going. I'm going in circles here. But what what I was uh, going to say is, my we have this text stream between Guy and Chris Rowe and I. Um, we have this texting thread. We we jump on and send each other different content that is of interest to some of the stuff we might talk about in this series we're doing. And Guy is who actually introduced me to you, uh, because he sent one of your videos where you it was maybe thirty seconds went into like the justification of hunting through a very humanistic point. And so this this is where I'm super curious. You're living in like Southern California and you're like you said you're go, you're kind of going through life the way that we all kind of get bogged down with especially in in some of these bigger urban areas and and whatnot. What where did this come from to get to to switch to this life where you're a hunter. You're living off the land. You know, I, I, I'm pretty sure you're, you're like off grid, aren't you? Well, here where we live, it's, 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 uh, 
it's kind of pretty much off grid. I mean, we're on catchment, but that's kind of common here on the big island. We're mm-hmm. on solar. Um, but I wouldn't say we're off grid, um, but we do live more natural type of life than most people are familiar with. I, I would say that. Okay. So, which is similar to like a lot of people think that because I live on a homestead, like we're off grid. Um, or because we're, we're like, so uh, my closest neighbor is, is a mile away and we're out in the woods and we're not off grid. Uh, we do have power. We have, we have a well, a, a, a really good well, actually. <laughs> and so we're not necessarily off grid, but we are living, um, as much from the land as we can. Uh, it'll get better as we become better gardeners because we're, my wife and I are pretty new to this gardening thing <laughs> and, uh, right. we're, we're not very good at it, man. Uh, and so there's there's some similarities there between us. And what I'm curious about is where this came from from you as as you're going through life in Southern California. Like, did was this something that has always been nagging at you in the back of your mind, or was there something or uh, an experience that kind of triggered this passion to live more of a natural lifestyle? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so. My brother had came to me one time and um, I hadn't talked to him in a while. And my mom just told me he was going through a bunch of different changes. And he was actually the one that kind of just shifted my trajectory, which in an interesting way, which might sound very uh, polar opposite. But he introduced me to being vegan or raw vegan at the time. Um, and that really impacted me in, in a way that it just it, it made me aware of what I was consuming and putting in my body and, and just food in general and the source of things. So it was kind of my, the genesis of of my journey of like trying to track down the truth because it made me question everything. Well, if the food that we're eating isn't what we're supposed to be eating and if there's all kinds of issues with that, it, that obviously led to other parts. But at that time, I I went raw vegan from one day to the next. Uh, um, just because, you know, he was making a lot of sense to me. And then I spent about uh, two and a half years just being strict raw vegan. And I was also doing a lot of fasting. I did 40 days on just water uh, multiple times. I fasted um, on all kinds of different, uh, just uh, different ways of fasting, dry fasting, just, just detoxing. I got very into the concept of this concept that we people get obsessed with called like detoxing and, and healing the, the healing journey, I would say, um, which I don't regret because I do feel like it was part of the process. Um, in total, I spent about five years as vegan and, and going through all that. But during that time I was learning a lot of information. So I was trying to trace down the origins of everything. Cause then I started to look at the fruits and vegetables and where did they come from? And well, it turns out the like, 99% of the fruits and vegetables we have have been kind of created by man. They've been bred over time to look the way they do. So that led me to like, well, what were people eating before the industrial revolution and, and all these? So it just kind of let me down this path that eventually I started tapping into information on podcasts and stuff about traditional life ways like hunting and gathering. And, and what, because I think we have this, uh, when we think about a lot of us, especially if we come from the city, we think about food, we think about farming. But prior mm-hmm. to farming, obviously, it was uh, prior to the industrial revolution or the agricultural revolution. It was hunting and gathering, right? Peoples and were hunting and gathering, and they were connecting with the land in that way, where they weren't necessarily trying to like 
wipe out a patch of land to plant a monocrop, but they were just interacting with the ecosystem as it naturally existed and playing like a role as another species in the ecosystem. So I really kind of felt like just really connected with that concept that that we didn't need to be doing all these other things that we were doing that that things were perfect as they were at some point and that that actually that everything that we created was almost like a deviation from that Mm -hmm. and that it it came along with all of its own issues that now we're kind of learning about right people are depressed they people are uh, sick and overweight like there's all these things that are kind of a byproduct of the world that we cultivated without realizing that there was repercussions to those actions so that information like kind of fell into my lap and it took me about five years before I really started to, or I was ready to embrace it personally. But I always, like, it really resonated with me. I just wasn't ready to let go of some of my beliefs at the time. And so, like, which was, like, being vegan and all of that. Yeah, and yeah. So, yeah, that was kind of the path of, that led me here. Hey, what is what is raw vegan versus just vegan? Raw vegan, basically, you're being vegan but you're not cooking any food you're just raw fruits and vegetables nuts and seeds everything is raw gotcha gotcha okay do you think um what i guess what is your thought on because i this has been a a topic on my show quite a few times where when you're talking about what we consider especially as americans or in any developed country you know whether Mm -hmm. it's europe or here or whatever um, when you think about what we consider as societal norms, you know, uh, get the big mortgage on a house in the suburbs and commute an hour each way in traffic on concrete to sit in a cubicle and stare at a computer screen and then, you know, go home and, and eat shitty foods and, and, and then, you know, go to bed, get up the next day and do it all over again. When you when you look at it from that perspective and understand that like the we we have a very unnatural percentage of the population that is overweight, uh, depressed on medication, on prescription medications for for various things, uh, whether they're health or mental related, um, and and just kind of the general nature as like the the degradation I, I should say to the human condition as to how we are health-wise, how, do, do you think that, especially Americans, do you think Americans are like blind to this and, and they just don't, they, they blame some of these problems on, on other issues, underlying problems like, you know, oh, you know, my parents were mean to me or, uh, you know, I don't have time to eat healthy or, you know, I, I don't, I don't have time or the inclination to go hunting or, or go even spend time in nature outside of a city park. Do you think that they like people are asleep at the will with what they're missing out on when they, when they remove all of that from their life? Yeah, I think that we've been sold this idea that the goal is convenience and we, we've uh, failed to realize that there's actually a lot of benefit in the challenge. There's a lot of benefit in going through things. And for me, that's kind of what like hunting and these activities represent. They kind of represent being part of the process, but because we've outsourced the process to somebody else, we've almost like the process is almost like the medicine. Mm -hmm. So 
people think of like food as nourishing, but I think the process itself is nourishing. Like when you go out on a hunt and you go through that process, you're already being nourished by, by it before you ever take the animal, you know? So I think in terms of that, that's the way that it all works. So even if you're going to garden, that process is already nourishing you. If you're, you know, uh, collecting whatever, you know, whatever in our life we've outsourced, I think that we're getting like the process version of, of that. Right. So we're not, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things missing from our life that we've outsourced because we thought they were inconvenient, but that process was necessary for our own health, for our own sanity, for our own just well-being, and and this illusion that eliminating anything that's resistance or challenging in your life is going to be is going you're going to be better off for it is just a lie. I think that we need to reintegrate uh, embracing the process because that's what a lot of people are missing, and they you get more satisfaction out of the end result when you go through the process. That's so true, man. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, and that's this is why I wanted to have you on the on the um, on the line here, because it, it like you just you just have a way of articulating this stuff in such a simplified manner. Where me, I I overly complicate things when I try to try to talk about it. So no, that's great. I I'm curious as to you. So you did this life transition. You spent like five years as a as a a, a vegan. Uh, and then, and then you kind of molded into what you are now. Um, how has your perspective changed? And do you feel like there's been benefit to like both your health and your soul, the way you live now versus how you lived then? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, are you talking about like when I was vegan or prior to that? Uh, you know, all of it, like compare, co contrast the difference between how you live prior to being a vegan and then your life as a vegan versus how you are now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, like a lot of people, um, like a lot of people stop being vegan or they transition to a different or integrating animal foods again because they like their health was failing. But uh, for me, it wasn't necessarily that like the, the kind of thing that kind of just made me switch over like um, was when I when we had our son and my wife, she had just lost a lot of weight during her pregnancy and my son had like jaundice. And um, basically we, we started incorporating animal foods again. And like within a week, she had picked up like 10 pounds and my son was looking better. And it was just like it wasn't even me that but I had to just recognize that there was something in in animal foods that was beneficial so that kind of broke that um spell that i had over me that thought that like i, I just had deep like neurosis around um like i was programmed to think that eating meat was like like severely unhealthy like mm -hmm. so my perspective around animal foods was super skewed and i and i it wasn't something that i had tested for myself and this is a lot of what happens with the internet is that people see things online and they take it for face value. They take it as a fact and they never go through the process of trying it for themselves, of testing it and then making their own opinion about it. So that's kind of what had happened with me. I had taken a lot of information and just regurgitated it, programmed myself. And then when when life and reality showed me something different, I, I had to just humble myself and be like, okay, maybe I didn't know what I was talking about. So that was kind of the reason why I transitioned. But 
I, I just, I feel like I, I could have continued that lifestyle. I don't know for how long, but I'm glad that I, I did um, realize that because I think that for me, it's, it's, it's been such a sacred and fulfilling process of being part of the, my food acquisition. And mm -hmm. so uh, being vegan, like I wasn't thinking in terms of that. I was satisfied with going to a store and getting certain foods from a certain aisle, you know, and, and labeling myself as such. But I don't make too much distinction between people who are vegan and shop at grocery stores and people who are eat meat and shop at grocery stores because really we're shopping in the same store, just in a different aisle. But so for me, the difference comes when you actually take ownership of your food acquisition so when you go out into the land and you harvest an animal when you go out and forage for food or grow your own food or have your own garden that is really what differentiates yourself from everybody else because everybody else is just as reliant and disconnected from their food whether it's an animal or a plant it doesn't matter to me i don't differentiate it's it's your what nurtures your body and do you know what it took to get to you or not Wow. Interesting, man. Um, let's kind of transition it to talking a little bit more about the hunting side of it. Uh, what, what do you get to, what do you get to hunt there? I'm sure you, you guys, you guys have wild hogs and, and whatnot. What, what all have you hunted out there in Hawaii? Yeah. So, um, yeah, obviously the, the wild, wild pigs, um, are very plentiful here. Uh, we also have, uh, goats, uh, wild sheep, um several species of like game birds uh like wild turkey mm -hmm. um yeah uh, so, like sometimes feral feral cows um yeah so that's that's pretty much it um generally speaking on some of the other islands they have uh uh deer as well and you i want to talk about i i'm on your instagram here I'm probably not going to be able to find it right now, but I, I'll, I'll kind of give you a quick synopsis of what it was. I really liked, I really liked your perspective on this, but you had talked about how this, this anti-hunting movement is by, by trying to prevent people from hunting. It is a form of like colonization. Can you speak to that for a minute? Yeah, I think, I think that was, uh, that was one of my videos that went viral where I was basically saying, um, that veganism and just this idea of like not eating animals or living off the land and hunting w was something that was perpetuated through colonization, right? Uh, so the mm -hmm. Native Americans, there was um, an incentive. I, I don't think it was completely 100% uh, this, but a large portion of it, like the reason the, the buffalo were hunted so um so so much and almost eradicated was because there was this idea that to reduce um the ability of native americans to basically subsist independent of the government right mm -hmm. and yep. so uh that was kind of one of the things that that kind of uh that I, the pieces and the dots that i connected and this idea that when you try to eliminate our ability to be self-reliant you're controlling that population you know and so, absolutely. yeah, I, I do think it, there is a, some truth to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look, you look at the history of the bison and the sheer mass quantities 
that existed on the North American landscape prior to European settlement. And it's just, it's funny when you're talking about like the, the indigenous culture that lived here had the ability to manage these animals in a way that they were productive and always in, in great population, very healthy numbers, always available. Um, and when the expansion out West began to take place, there's a lot of evidence to support that, um, by, by removing the bison from the landscape, it would, it would force the natives onto these reservations because they, they would have nothing to live off of, right? And so th- th- these, are, these are cultures that, that required or, or depended on these, these uh, the species for thousands of years, not, you know, a couple of generations. We're talking about hundreds of generations, Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how they were able to, with with the the populations that they had prior to European settlement, um, versus the amount of animals on the landscape. It, it relates to another video that you talked about, where the biodiversity is greatest when there is this dependency on the wildlife on the on the land, and that is because it is managed for people that depend on it, and so the biodiversity is increased. When there is value in that wildlife, if if people can say, and I want to get your take on this, Ketzel, mm-hmm. pe- people can say that, uh, you know, oh, we value wildlife, so we need to stop hunting. We need to just stop hunting so we can go out and, you know, take photographs of them or see them in nature and value them in that form. But what greater hey. value is wildlife than to the hunter that depends on that wildlife. And that's one of the things, um, yeah, that's one of the things that I really touched on that I kind of, and a lot of people, you know, got upset with me because I said that people say they love animals, right? And Mm -hmm. it's almost like this idealistic concept. Like you love an animal, but do you know the animal? Like, you you it's almost like you're trying to project this ideal out into the world but it isn't reality like because i think that to know some uh, to love something you have to know it and to and to know it there's nothing more intimate than than having that relationship as like hunters have with an animal like if you ask the average person that says they love animals okay well you 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 do you love an elk okay what is the you know um what what foods do they eat? What's their habitat? What's, mm-hmm. what's their, what's their mating patterns? Like, like, um, you know, what's their call? Like how, what sound do they make? What, like, when do they, like all this information, they, they would have no answers to, but if you ask the hunter, well, they will be able to tell you this information because they have a more intimate relationship with this organism. And so I think that we have to be real with ourselves and say, yes, I think that you, like the concept of loving animals, but I don't think that you truly uh, can love an animal because you don't really know nothing about that animal. And so this ideal is just an ideal. It's just an ideal. And so um, I just, I put that out there and I've also put out this idea that, as you were saying about the ecosystem and biodiversity. um, so, So what happens is people think that if people stop hunting, that that e- ecosystem is just going to be preserved and, and that everything is just going to be 
you know, thriving. Yeah. This and fantasy of natural balance. Right, right. But the thing is that that's why I said recently, like we we always have to account for human intervention because um something will happen with the land, right? Like, and that's the thing about like these uh reserves and places that are reserved for wildlife and, and have hunting as a part of that, you know, system that because they're reserved for that nothing else is coming into play but as soon as you take that away it's like a vacuum that you don't know what's going to fill that it might be filled by some logging it might be filled by building um infrastructure like suburban neighborhood or something like something else is going to fill that vacuum so i think it's important to to not romanticize the the idea that if you stop hunting that everything would just be as it is Mm -hmm. well i mean you can the it's not like this is, uh, you, you know, a theory. You, you can look at the Yellowstone National Park and the way that um, the people that are, uh, again, I, I, I always tend to do this, man. I always bring up the wolf issue. <laughs> Every, but it's a hot topic where I live. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, but if you if you look at the Yellowstone Park, uh, Yellowstone National Park, where there's kind of this, this thought where, you know, there's no hunting, and it's like this ecological system where nature takes its own course and, and let's see what happens. Well, uh, so back in the 80s and 90s, the elk herds were just absolutely out of control in the park. Uh, this is because there was no human intervention. There was no real predator other than the grizzly, which the numbers of grizzly bears were way down at the time anyway. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of predators on the, on the land, uh, it, within the park. And so the, the elk populations were thriving uh, to the point where they were creating damage and actually, um, you know, destroying their own habitat, uh, just due to overpopulation. And so we had this idea to reintroduce wolves and let the wolves go in and take care of the, the elk problem, which they did. Uh, to the point where in some parts of the park or or some numbers I have seen are up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% reduction in population within the park for Rocky Mountain elk. Well, that's uh, kind of solved that issue for, for a moment, right? You know, the so-called no human intervention until you come to realize that the rate at which wolves breed on the land and at, at, over somewhere between 30 and 40% a year and these wolves are unchecked and left on, uh, you know, endangered species list way too long and way past objections and uh, objectives. And now you're now we're experiencing what happens when you let nature take its own course without human interaction or management. Um, and now you've got wolf populations that are on the decline in the park because they their food source is gone. They they ate all the they ate all the elk. I mean, you don't see any elk, and now you're going to start not seeing any wolves. And so this the I, I think that the concept of natural uh, management for for natural systems, such as you know an ecological center like Yellowstone National Park, you know, uh, when you're looking at something like that, and people have this fantasy that that wildlife is going to manage itself because as if humans don't exist. Right. They think of this as a new thing, as, mm-hmm. as like wildlife management is a new thing. What they don't take into account is that park before long before it was a national park. The 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 wildlife was managed by people. 
these right. were the Native Americans that were here that controlled and valued these populations of wildlife. They understood the role of the wolf. They understood the role of the, the elk and the deer and the bear. And these, these they were managed to their benefit because they were valued. And that is what I think people miss when they start you know, join in groups like PETA or the Humane Society of the United States, where it's like, like you said, there's there's this colonization aspect of it, and there's this total ignorance to the reality on the ground side to it, where it's like, oh, we're 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 just going to let the animals thrive by themselves, and and they don't understand that that has never been the case in the history of the world since humans have been in existence. Wildlife has thrived through human inter- intervention and management. Well, yeah, and you know what's at the root of that. It's that we don't see ourselves as a part of nature. So, so when exactly. we're thinking of the equation, we're thinking that we're this outside force or entity that shouldn't be in the environment. Like we should just leave nature alone as if we don't have a place in it because people have forgotten that they aren't part of nature and that there is a place for us in the ecology and that perhaps the reason that the world and is is going the way that it is and that a lot of this biodiversity is being lost because the role that we were supposed to be playing in the ecology we're no longer playing and so the 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 balance that is supposed to exist as us being a part of it is no longer there mhm yeah i i that again that is another common common subject matter here where you know we've got this theory or people have this theory that Humans are so above the natural system because we're so secluded in these uh, urban sprawls like San Francisco and, and, and New York City where, you know, the, you're so far removed from the natural system that they, th- they think that we are above nature as if we are not a part of nature. And I think that that's what, and I've said this a million times on this show, uh, is, is what, one thing that separates hunters from, from other folks is the fact that we we take part in nature. We we become part of nature in a sense where we're not just we're not spectators anymore. We're we're not just there to take a photo or hike and enjoy and observe. We are we are a part of nature. And and that kind of leads me to my next question for you. Let's take a quick time out so I can offer a couple of words from our sponsors. The first one being Eastman's Hunting Journals. Guys, they got the magazine, they got the Mule Deer course, which is an online e-course for you mule deer hunting enthusiasts like me out there, and they got Tag Hub. If you're looking to do the research you need to find the right tag to fit your budget and your time frame, check it all out at eastmans.com. Next is Phelps Game Calls. Guys, Huntsman 10 will get you 10% off at Phelps Game Calls from Elk Calls, Predator calls, deer calls, turkey calls, all the calls you want this coming season. Spring turkey is just around the corner, so make sure you're checking them out. I like the black bat. And last but not least is Hoffman Boots, my boot of choice. One of the most underrated boots that nobody talks about for hunters. Go to HoffmanBoots.com and in, at checkout use promo code HUNTSMAN10, all caps lock, for 10% off your new favorite pair of hunting boots. And folks, if you're loving the show, if you're loving the podcast, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write a good review for us. We really appreciate it. It goes a long way to help us with the show and our mission. The Western Huntsman, brought to you by Eastman's Hunting Journals. Check it out. 
Like, how do you see your role uh, as a human? Like, how do you view your role within the natural system? Yeah, I view my role as any other organism. I think that I have the responsibility to interact with the ecosystem and to be familiar with it, you know, and this is something that I really resonated with when I first heard this concept of just every other organism being your relative, right? Because if we think about genetics and, and DNA, like all life is uh, exists in the phylogenetic tree of life, like, and we're all connected to other life because we share the same nucleotides, the same ACTs and Gs that are in the plant, that are in the insect, that are in the animal is also in us. So we're literally relatives of one another. And so being part of that tapestry and reintegrating back into that tapestry in, in a conscious way, I think is one of the greatest things that we could do in this day and age because so much so many of us are disconnected that we're making decisions from the space of not even relating to to the elements to nature right we go outside into a natural landscape and we don't see the individual species we don't see we don't see the complexity of all we just see oh that's just nature but there's so much more to it right this is so it's the source of where everything comes from and for me um that's how i've began to relate to it and really like you're saying uh as hunters going out into the land we do become a part of nature like in in a very real way because like you said we're not just hiking like what I say is like hunting is like hiking with a purpose. Mm -hmm. Like you actually have a purpose out on the land. Like you're looking for something. You're there to accomplish something. You're there to like just your awareness of how you're moving at that time is different because you're there for that purpose. And so um, that does make you part of that landscape. And it's, it's, I think it's a very sacred thing that we should strive to preserve and to for those of us or those that, that haven't um reconnected with that part of themselves i think that's something that we should do for me the last person that i've that i've um found out in my lineage was my great grandfather he was the last person that hunted so i revived this tradition uh as an adult in my lifetime um because of the information that i discovered Man, I love hearing that. I, I really love hearing that. That's uh, that that's it's speaks to the connectivity of the human spirit to what hunting is. And and I I don't mean to sound overly philosophical with it, but a great example of what I'm talking about. And I think I think I've told this story on the show before. But I was hunting for mule deer in central Utah uh, at above ten thousand feet elevation, and I, I was bow hunting. Now I had I had modern archery equipment, uh, you know I had a compound bow, um, yeah, you know I had all the modern camo and and the pack, uh, but but this became irrelevant as I was sitting overlooking this the very top of this drainage, where I had found these trails where I could tell that the deer were, uh, and this speaks to you know, how hunters understand wildlife on a deeper level than, than, uh, people that don't. 
Um, I, I understood that the deer, because of the time of year, you know, we're talking late August, were migrating kind of up and down throughout the day to a feeding area versus their, or, or, and back up to their bedding area, which was in a shaded spot. And there was, mm-hmm. there was like a little creek bottom in the bottom. And so, so I just know why the deer are moving through there. And I know that early in the morning, I'm going to catch them on those trails. And I know it right before sundown, I'm going to, I'm going to catch them on these trails. Interestingly, I set up and I, I'm waiting for a deer and there was there was actually one specific buck I was after. Um, I'd seen him a couple of days before and he, he was a big buck. Uh, I never did get him, by the way. Um, I'm sitting there and I'm kind of looking at the ground and I, you know, how sometimes you, you just be sitting there and just kind of taking everything in and I, I kind of move some rocks around and I found an arrowhead. Now, this hmm. arrowhead was... Um, Gosh, I'm going to totally butcher this because now I don't remember, but it was over a thousand years old. Uh, oh, wow. The, the scree shale rock that sat at the top of this mountain is where the natives would come up and they would shape these arrowheads and make them. And my, my thought is, because I was down, you know, a couple hundred yards from where, where the actual shale rock was, the scree, and, and I was sitting on these trails for over a thousand years, people that have hunted have understood why deer are going to be in this drainage. And so mm-hmm. I was doing something in, this was roughly 2009, 2010-ish. Uh, I, I was doing something roughly a thousand years later that somebody a thousand years prior to me was doing because that hunter understood the same thing that I did as a hunter. We knew why the wild game was going to be down there. And it, it just nothing can connect you to this world and and to the human experiment and and the human connection to the world and our role in nature as hunting and and that's really where i experienced it and really where i began thinking a little bit more deeper about this thing that we do this this hunting thing that we do because and and it's you know i'm i'm passionate about it man i i love hunting and and that I, just kind of tied it all together. Um, so I have I'm I'm in the middle where we're uh, I, I told you we live on a homestead and uh, our house is going to be done next summer. Uh, so right now we're just kind of living in uh, we're living in a fifth wheel. Uh, and and I've got this other hunting trailer that I record these podcasts in. So the point being, um, that that arrowhead I still have it, and I'm going to I I, I can't maybe you can help me with this. I want. I want to like honor this arrowhead in a, in a very unique way because when, when my place is built, I'm having a, uh, a an outbuilt, a shop built where I'm going to build a studio room for this podcast in it. And it's uh, where the, the, it'll be the final spot of the broken time studio, I think. Uh, and, and I want to have that arrowhead displayed in there. You got any ideas what I could do with that? Cause you're a pretty creative guy. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to start doing is creating like these frames that have like the head of the animal and elements of the their environment around it. So I, what I was thinking was if you did something like that, that you could put the arrowhead as a part of that frame because they would have been hunting that animal, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of tie it as like a small scene, like in a frame with the head in the center and elements of its environment and maybe that arrowhead there as well, just kind of symbolizing the whole scene, right? Yeah. The, 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 
animal in the environment and also um, the arrowhead. So that's just an idea. Um, because you have like this, you have this website uh, where you make like travel jewelry and uh, you have some other products that you offer through this. Um, like if, if that was something you'd be interested in, man, I would totally, I'd send you the, the deer skull and the uh, arrowhead and have you make it. I'll pay you to make it for me. Cause I, I I'm not that creative, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really don't have a lot of experience with that, but that's just something that I've been wanting to do is, is I have mm-hmm. the idea right now, but I haven't yet executed. It. So maybe once I execute it a couple of times, um, yeah, I might be open to it. So you don't want me to be your guinea pig? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather be uh, a little more solid in my um, my craft. I can but, I can appreciate that. I, I wanted to just say about that story. Like, I really, I really love that story because it reminds me like that nature is timeless. Like, like we think that we're progressing, mm-hmm. we're in the year two thousand twenty three and technology. But in that moment, it was like, it was timeless. Like the same thing another human being was doing a thousand years ago, you found yourself in the same predicament. Yeah. And and the deer were doing the same thing. And the deer were following the same path and the, and the same patterns. And, and of course, the environment might have changed a bit and the surroundings might have changed a bit. But ultimately, like there was this timelessness that you synchronized with. And that, so that, that to me was like, that's a cool story. It just ties everything together. You know, the, the using the mountain as a resource, as a hunter, um, it just, it like, I, again, I don't, I don't mean to get overly like spiritual or philosophical about it, but it, it was as if I could feel that hunter's presence from, you know, a thousand plus years ago. And, and so I just, I can't, uh, I can't even explain the feeling, um, well, I want to I want to get your take on when again a big part of my show is this this discussion and this this fight that we have against folks that don't understand hunting and some of them are very hostile uh, they're very angry about the fact that we hunt um, and they're very and I, I get it because there's there's been some mis especially with social media lately there's been a lot of misrepresentation as to what hunting is what hunting means uh, the connectivity of hunting um, you, you know you get somebody that, uh, that there's always a bad apple in every demographic right I mean you've you've always got your uh, your ten percent that kind of shine that dark light on the rest of us but for the for most hunters this is what hunting is and i want to get your take as to like if you were in a discussion with somebody uh from your shoes and your opinion who felt like their um moral high ground from their perception was so great because they weren't hunters or they weren't uh like that hunter gatherer or live close to nature kind of mentality they 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 know uh kind of a they have a limited view an experience as to the natural world we're telling you not to hunt how what would you say to that person and how how would you engage them to try to help them overcome this limited view that they have yeah uh, I, I, something that i've had to do um because of nature of the content that i do put out and first first and foremost you have to realize that is your responsibility to 
almost be the more mature person. Like you have to have more composure, um, more articulation. That's why I'm glad we're having this conversation because what I noticed in the hunting community and just with people who grew up hunting and that's just their way of life, that they're a lot of times missing the component of like articulation. Right. And so I would agree with that. Totally. Yep. That's, that's what I'm trying to bring to, to uh, this discussion is the ability to articulate a thought and a perspective that many people have, but they just can't express it. And so they, they know why they're doing it. They, they, uh, they might be doing it right. They're part of the process of, 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 you know, conservation and hunting, everything that comes along with it. But when they're talking to people, they don't have the, the ability to articulate it. So I've kind of taken on this responsibility of being able to articulate some of these concepts. And so when I'm putting these things together, I think that that's why I have gotten a lot of engagement is because I'm able to share the the thought in a way that people are more receptive to it. And so when I do get people that go against it, despite you know, me trying to communicate as best I can. I just try to continue that conversation. Recently, I uh, did a collaboration post with uh, um, Blood Origins uh, on Instagram, and um, he was oh, talking about, yes, um, it's like one of my recent videos. And um, we we did a collaboration post about conservation. And there was pe- people in the comments that they were just arguing back and forth. And, um, and well, Oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, the I see the picture of Robbie. They're right there. Yeah. So, oh, so, cool. so Robbie. Yeah, uh, he was he was doing a really good job of just being very uh, mature about the conversation, even though most of the time the other people aren't being mature about it, or they just have this, uh, like you said, this moral high ground that they're that they think they have that they're talking in a derogatory way. Um, and so I, I think I, I really like the way he handled it. And I think that that's the way uh, we need to handle it is where we're just providing facts. And the funny thing was that in that discussion, uh, what it came down to was he, he said, look, this is something that's working for us. Um, if you have a better solution, let me know. So, so he said, what's your solution? And he said, the guy, the guy said, I don't have a solution. And so Robbie said, uh, well, this is a solution that we've came up with and it's working for us. So unless you have something better, then, uh, you know, you shouldn't be criticizing what we've created. And so it's, it's interesting how people feel like they can critique things when they don't even have a solution. Right. So you have to first realize that a lot of this is just emotional response. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not even that, that they know the facts or the information it's just that this is this is a topic that for a lot of people is very sensitive and very um, triggering. So you do have to come at it from that space. So when you see that kind of response, first acknowledge like this person's triggered. This person ha- is is having an emotional response, and so you don't want to kind of feed into that. A because it's not going to help the situation, and B because there's other people watching. They're every they're watching to see how you respond. So we have this burden of responsibility basically to respond in the most uh, diplomatic way possible because you're representing, you're representing the thing that you're talking about, right? You're representing hunting. So when they're saying, Oh, is this how hunters behave? They talk like this, they, they respond like this. So, so you have to go with that in mind. So 
uh, with that being said, just try to be as diplomatic, try to be as as understanding, non-combative and, and reactive, but just try to inform with facts and information and thank them for sharing their perspective. Like, appreciate you sharing your perspective. Here's what I know to be true. Here, here are the facts. Here, here's some examples where this has has been beneficial with studies, with references and all this. Um, here's been my experience. Here's, here's how it has enhanced my life. Um, but I can understand why you might be uncomfortable with that. Uh, so just speaking in that way, rather than like, you know, going back and forth with them in a way that's not going to be conducive. Yeah, I would agree with that for, for the most part. I think that the, it's not super productive because you're right. They do come at it from a very emotional place. Uh, and, and the emotions are driven through, um, and I don't mean the word ignorance in like a, in, in an insulting way, but there is a, there's a high level of ignorance as to what hunting is. And, and the perception sure. comes, there's, you know, we're fighting against Hollywood's, uh, portrayal of what hunting is. Uh, and we're fighting against what PETA's portrayal of hunting is. And, and, you know, the Humane Society of the United States and some of these folks that just, they really don't understand the concept. And Robbie, you know, speaking of Robbie, um, he kind of opened my eyes to that because I'm guilty of what you're talking about, Ketzel, where I, I was, uh, I, I would get super hostile. Um, I would get super um, aggressive with my mm-hmm. response because I'm so defensive over hunting and, and this lifestyle. And I'm, I'm very, um, I'm an emotional guy myself. And, and I, I, I have a disdain for people who try to tell me how I can and can't live. And it's just always been in my nature. It's just, just who I am, you know, and, right. um, and, and I, where I can appreci- appreciate other people's perspectives and I can appreciate other people's value sets that does not give them the right to push their value set on me. Uh, and so, um, the, 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 the concept that, that Robbie, kind of formulated of having these discussions in in a more mature calmer manner is something i really learned from him and i'm learning from people like you uh who have this ability to to articulate things from from a very pragmatic uh, you know stance of you know explaining the facts and the logic behind it where i where i'm troubled with that concept is as my good buddy chris rowe would say facts and logic have no value to people who do not value facts and logic. So if they're coming at this from a very emotional place, the facts and logic aren't going to work. We have to figure out how to bring it back to them from an emotional place from our end. And that is where you come in because you have, um, you have a way of delivering some of this information from both a facts and logic position and an emotional place where you tie it into the, the history of humanism and right. and it, it that's that's where I think we have a winning ticket like I, I can't help but wonder you know this a big discussion uh, has been up here because I'm in the Pacific Northwest essentially I mean I'm in North Idaho and so uh, the Pacific Northwest has been a big discussion point has been the spring bear hunting season in the state of Washington where I feel like uh, the commission came at it from uh, well, not not the entire commission. Certain commission members in the in the state of Washington came at it from a very emotional place, and I feel like if you were there, 
presenting a case for a spring bear hunt in the way that you can deliver these arguments and, and articulate them to the commission in person, I feel like that's what would have made the difference. Because between the argument of, of how it does, the, the, the colonization factor of it, uh, the health factor of it, um, everything that you talk about, how we balance and value wildlife more because we are, we are hunters and how we understand the biodiversity on the landscape because we are hunters. That's the kind of argument I think that we need to start focusing on instead of coming back with, hey, you know, well, we're conservationists because we're hunters because we bought a $30 deer tag, you know, because that, right. that just doesn't hold any water. You uh, know, you have to appeal to people's something deeper. And I think that that's what other hunters have to tap into. They, it can't just be this because if somebody doesn't, isn't familiar with, what you're used to, like you, you, this activity of hunting, this this tradition of hunting, they you have to connect it to something that they are familiar with. That's why you know you notice that I com- connected back to this human element. Like this is who we are. Mm-hmm. This is our lineage. This is what makes us human, and this is our integration into nature. And yes, from the outside, it might appear as something brutal, but it's the you know, it's us being woven into the tapestry of life. And, and this is the balance between life and death. And these are all realities. And this is, that's why I said my journey became spiritual because I realized that it's much deeper than just this surface level understanding. But if you can give them the spiritual component, if you can give them the, the uh, human traditional component, something that they can see themselves um, and connect with internally, I think that that's where you, start to make more understanding than just, Hey, like I want to hunt because I pay for this tag and like, this is what I do. And this is, you know, what I want to do. Like you have to just in a way, touch people's hearts, you know, because that's what Pete is doing. That's what, yeah. Yeah. That's what they're doing. So you have to use the same techniques, but towards the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and that's kind of something, see, again, this is what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> I've been saying something along those lines, but I haven't been able to deliver it in such an articulate and understanding way that you have. PETA and, and these anti-hunting organizations, that's that kind of emotion. They're appealing to the human sentiment to feel right. sorry for something. And who doesn't feel sorry for that? You, you know, who, do, who it, it draws on everybody's heartstrings. Uh, with the propaganda and the, and the advertising that they use, it's of course you're going to feel that way. And so coming at it from the opposite direction for, with a counter argument from the same, I guess, approach of that, that emotional side and that, that human story side, because there's not a human being on the planet that does not have an ancestral hunting background. It, it's, it's who we are. It's who, and it doesn't matter what the culture is. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what the culture is. And this whole anti-hunting thing is is just like I I had a recent discussion uh, with my new friend Kelsey from No Reason to Be Vegan about how like veganism is a, is a first world. Um, it, it's a first world thing that we can enjoy only in first world places. Anti-hunting is the same thing. It's a luxury to be an anti-hunter because we have the luxury to live that way and have that kind of emotion dictate our life. Does that make right. sense? And so when when you take that away, there are cultures and places throughout the world that don't have that luxury. And so 
it, it just the argument doesn't hold water. You can tell I'm getting a little bit fired up because I'm thinking about some of the anti hunters uh, <laughs> recent <laughs> advertising I've seen. So, but, but yeah, look, I've seen YouTube videos where they were very well made and they use some of these elements that we're talking about, appealing to the emotion, appealing to the tradition of it, to the human side of it, to the nature side of it. And that you would see people in the comments like, you know, I can get with this. Like if, if you're hunting like this, then okay, I, I get it. You mm-hmm. know, but I, but I just don't like when people are doing like trophy hunting or like they're trying, they, they, they have more understanding once you provide like some a deeper level of context to it, you know? Yeah. And even, even the term trophy hunting has been hijacked by the anti-hunting movement because actually when you're talking about how hunting is a tool of conservation, it's actually trophy hunters the the trophy hunters that make the biggest impact and and by that you need to understand how to define what trophy hunting is they define it as people who go out and shoot an animal and all they care about is the trophy right they're not harvesting the meat they're not um they're not partaking in what nature just gave them the bounty that comes out of this animal uh, that's what they, and they portray it like it's this big thing that there's this big percentage of hunters that go out and they're just, you know, I'm doing the air quotes, uh, trophy hunters, but actually what trophy hunting is, is the hunter that can go out and they can kill the largest or most mature animal amongst a species group in that, that, uh, that particular region or landscape. So for example, a trophy hunter that can go out and get a five plus year old mule deer buck. That's a trophy buck, but mm-hmm. that, that trophy hunter is also taking the meat. He's taking usually the heart, the liver, everything he can as a component off of that animal and utilizing that. But because he's taking the most uh, mature animal off the landscape, he's giving that younger generation of animals the opportunity to thrive and spread their genes. And so, right. so in so, that context, so yeah, go ahead. In that context, trophy hunting is actually a conservation tool, uh, but the the term trophy hunting has been hijacked so that people think that it's just you know folks that go out and and shoot an animal for the sake of killing, and that's where they've won that argument. Like, it's really hard to turn people around on that that particular term and the use of the the you know the phrase trophy hunting. That's that's interesting because in that scenario. They're making the most ecologically sustainable choice, mm-hmm. but but at the same time, that equates to a bigger animal because it just happens to be, you know, uh, older and and so it has time to to mature and get bigger yeah. and whatnot. And so that's interesting that 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 has been weaponized because the actual outcome of it is actually better than not selecting for the biggest, oldest male you know or whatever it is well you think about you think about um the cringeworthy phrase of trophy hunting when you when you hear that uh you think of this some rich hedge fund manager from new york city flying to africa and shooting an elephant right Right. and (laughs) that's kind of like that's kind of like the thing that rolls in a lot of people's heads the problem with that that theory and that that thought process is even if it was some rich hedge hedge fund um and let's say the guy was a total jackass just like you know a jerk 
And, right. <laughs> and and let's say that that was the case, and he flew to Africa and shot an elephant. The the thing that is not told, the story that is not told out of that, is that the the economics on that local community in Africa that that guy just paid, just bought the elephant population in that in that region a lot more time, and and they they he just helped the local economy in terms of whether he's using a guide or a service and all the services that go into that and gave value to that, that landscape because a wildlife now has value on an otherwise barren landscape. And I, I, I want to say, I, th- I want to say Robbie from blood origins talks about this concept, but that's exactly uh, what he talked about in the video that we shared together. And the reason okay. that I shared that with him, uh, because that's not my personal approach to hunting, right? Like I'm not oh, me going out the last for that reason. Um, but I wanted to open up a conversation and try to understand, even for myself, the different ways that hunting can be beneficial to the ecology. And just to start that conversation, because I think that um, that that just because I'm not approaching it from that angle doesn't mean that there's not some benefit that's acquired from what he's doing in Zimbabwe or the region where that's happening. So that's why mm-hmm. I, I decided to reach out to him and, and collaborate on that post. Yeah, no, that that's great. You guys did that. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. I, uh, I, I didn't see that post before, so that's, that's cool. I'm going to watch it here as soon as we're done, but what, you know, when it boils down to it, Ketzel, like when, when you, when you're talking about, Instagram and, and, and the followers, like you've got a pretty big following going on. What are you hoping to achieve with that? Yeah, I think I just, I I just want to share my perspective and just add value to the world in some way and organize people's minds in a way. Cause I think we, we have so much information and so many beliefs and, a lot of times people believe things and they don't even know why they believe them. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, I was just talking about this to a friend yesterday. He was talking about like how he doesn't eat pork and he's like, you know what? I never really thought about why I don't eat pork. It's just something that I grew up as a belief. Like people around me, they, they talked about not eating pork. And I was like, well, what, what's the difference like between that and like some other animal. Right. And, mm-hmm. and he didn't really have an answer. And, and that's kind of my point is that we need to start questioning things and, and getting more into the factual and the and the realistic outcomes. And so, yes, you might have an emotional um, response to this, but what's the actual outcome? Because the actual outcome might be better than what you're suggesting. Like there might be a better solution that might make you feel emotional but is in in the ultimate grand scheme of things is actually better mm-hmm. you know for, for 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 the thing that you're trying to save even so it's just to um shift the perspective and to bring a new angle into into these topics that have been looked at a certain way for so long i love the idea of trying to help people eliminate some of their limiting beliefs uh I, I think that's a noble cause, man, um, because I, I, you know, one of the, I heard, I had a buddy, he was actually on the show at one point, uh, his name's Weldon, but he talks about this, what, exactly what you were talking about, you know, the, the your friend that doesn't eat pork, but he doesn't really know why, 
Um, he talks about how one of the one of the factors in some of the unhealthiness and and people that are overweight and fat and everything. Um, what what happens is, is is a lot of these people were raised by parents and grandparents who would make them sit there and 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 they'd say things like, "Well, finish everything on your plate, finish everything on your plate, right? Uh, before mm-hmm. you can get up from the table, you got to finish everything." And this this kind of derives out of like the Great Depression when when resources were very limited, and so you know there was no wasting of anything, and then they kind of you know move on with life. And they grow up that way and they learn that you have to finish everything because resources are limited. And then that, you know, translate two generations later, you've got parents and grandparents talking about how you need to, you need to finish everything on your plate before you can get up and, and leave. And next thing you know, you've got a generation of, of uh, like 60% of the population that's overweight. And it's, it's like he, he, and he explains it a lot better than I do, Kessel, but he's like, you know, I, I finally realized that because his parents did that. And he was overweight and he finally lost a bunch of weight. And, and he's like, it's, it's because I had this belief that I had to finish everything on my plate. And really I didn't. <laughs> so, um, isn't that an interesting, I mean, we could do a whole podcast episode on, on that concept alone. Uh, but I won't, I won't bog you down with all that. I, I, I have the same thing with me. Like, uh, there's something about like the plate that has to be clean. Yeah, or I I don't feel like like I it's like I can get up and and finish eating like I have mm-hmm. to finish play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I mean when you have something like that that comes out of your childhood, it's very difficult to break that. You know, you, you, it's a and and it can hold some of those beliefs, those those limiting beliefs that that kind of derive out of people's childhoods. I mean, they could be really impactful throughout your entire life. And if you don't ever recognize them, they can really hold you back with certain things. And so, yeah, it's, I, cause I, when he explained that to me, some light bulbs on some other things that I thought I believed in firmly, uh, kind of went off in my head. So, um, we'll tell everybody, uh, Ketzel, like, Tell us where everybody could find you and what what all you've got going on and uh, why they'd benefit from from tracking you down on Instagram and, and your uh, is the website is it zap forward slash wild Ketzel or am I reading that wrong? Yeah, that's just like a like you know like a link tree type. Oh yeah, okay, I see it now. I just clicked on it. Yeah, so it's wild Ketzel on. You know, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and um, yeah, right now what I'm working on with Wildcat, so like I'm I'm looking to have like some sort of men's retreats. So I want to like um, I think one of the big uh, we we didn't talk about this, but like on a personal thing uh, level, one of the big things that I've seen that a lot of like young men are going through is like they don't have um, this rites of passage types of situations they're not really connected to their masculinity and this kind of ties back into hunting because i think hunting is in in some ways a rite of passage for men something that we would have traditionally been growing up with and that would have would have cultivated our masculinity um so i i'm looking to put together some like retreat type of events where men could come we can go hunting we can uh just build with each other, do some workouts, and just kind of uh, cultivate that um, rite of passage, that masculinity that a lot of people, a lot of men feel like they'd never receive, including myself. 
I think that a lot of the things that I did growing up and a lot of my journey was me trying to self-induce that rite of passage almost in a way when I was water fasting, when I was doing all these extreme things, I was trying to prove myself mm -hmm. in a way, you know? And so I want to provide a space where that can be done in a, in a, in a sacred and, um, ceremonial way so that's that's something you'd be putting together where people would come to the big island and and you would have um like like you said a, a multi-day retreat where they can experience all these different things that kind of gives them that feeling of of a right to passage into masculinity for for like young men you mean right yeah that's a great idea that's a great man. I'd support that. Whatever whatever you need for me, I'd I'd definitely support that mission. I think I think that's important, and it's something that's lacking in our society uh, where there there's not enough focus on. All the focus is basically the opposite of that, and I think that that has led to um, you know, some of the the conditions that we see on the ground uh, within society. And and so no, I I s sincerely. Cancel light. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, exactly. Because um, as I looked at it to the internet and the landscape, and I'm reading comments and I'm seeing videos, it's like, it's so, you know, palpable, like the lack of, of this that men are missing. Like they're literally like crying out for this almost, you know? And so it's mm -hmm. like, we, we have to start um, coming together and providing these kinds of things. And there's other people that are doing it online, but just for me, I, I've, been feeling called to um, to put something like that together, so that's something that I'm going to be sharing soon, and you know, always sharing new content and new ideas. Um, I touch on a variety of different topics. Um, it's all relating back to nature and the nature of ourselves. So, what does it mean to be human, and everything that comes along with that, and which is a lot, you know, a lot of different topics. But I just share my own take on them. Yeah, and I I really like your take on them, man. Uh, I I really enjoy your stuff. I think I think you've got uh, you're you're a guy that's going somewhere uh, because you're touching you're touching a lot of people, obviously. Um, so, um, you know, again, I, I you know anything I could do to support that mission, just you just let me know. And I, I and and I extend this I, I extend this invite every once in a while. Uh, but Ketzel, if you if you ever want to come to Idaho. And you want to hunt a black bear, or you want to hunt some elk, uh, or a mule deer, or what, whatever. You just uh, you just keep me in mind and and uh, let me know. I'll make it happen for you. Uh, I, th I think it'd be I will definitely keep that in mind. <laughs> be a cool cool experience. Um, if you like wild hogs, you you definitely like uh, black bear. <laughs> so yeah, I um, definitely have been curious about that um, that animal and that type of hunt. So yeah. I'll yeah. definitely keep that in mind. Yeah, for sure. We'll stick on the line, man. I appreciate it. And everybody listening, uh, I am going to have um, Ketzel's Instagram and everything kind of linked in the show notes there. Uh, I'd encourage you to check him out. Watch his videos. Uh, he's got a lot of really good content, which is why he's got like over 130,000 followers, <laughs> you know, on Instagram. So uh, you definitely have it figured out. So I appreciate you joining me on this. Again, stick on the line, and uh, we're, we're going to have to stay in touch, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Thank you very much. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on 